Today, we continue our in-depth series on China's foreign policy since the 1949 revolution. We will pick up where we left off. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger have come to China. Nixon has been evicted from office, resigning rather than being impeached. Gerald Ford comes to China in Nixon's stead and resumes the process of normalization of relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please show your support for independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. We are joined once again by Dr. Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. Ken is also the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University and an activist and organizer with the peace group Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be back. Good to carry on the conversation. Yes, we're very happy that we're able to do this in-depth examination of the different stages and phases of China's foreign policy as it emerged following the 1949 revolution. In summary, Again, we have the period of the 1950s where China is part of a central part of the second most important part of the socialist bloc that was led by the Soviet Union and anchored by the Soviet Union, but included the governments of Eastern Europe, the Central and Eastern European socialist governments, also the government of North Korea, the government of North Vietnam. China is part and parcel of the socialist camp. In the 1960s, there is the Sino-Soviet dispute that begins as an ideological battle between comrades over how to deal with the problems posed by U.S. imperialist pressure on both China and the Soviet Union. And that ideological struggle gives way by the late 1960s to a struggle not between comrades, but a struggle between states, states that have armies. And in fact, There's even military clashes along the Soviet-Chinese border in 1969. And then we have begun our examination of China's foreign policy in the 1970s. Richard Nixon watching and exploiting the division between the Soviet Union and China opens the door to China, or China opens the door to the United States. But U.S. policy changes The U.S. recognizes that Taiwan is part of China. The United States supports the eviction of the rump government led by Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan from the Security Council. Thus, the People's Republic of China takes its rightful seat at the United Nations in the Security Council. And where we left off, Ken, in the mid-1970s, the Chinese are no longer really This is, again, under the leadership of Mao. Mao was still alive in 1975. The Chinese clearly, by an examination of the conversations between Mao and Henry Kissinger and Mao and Gerald Ford, they become skeptical. They believe the U.S. is playing the China card against the Soviet Union and the Soviet card against China. They no longer really believe that the United States will live up to what it said earlier in their earlier discussions that the United States would actually be a true ally of China. But nonetheless, we're in the mid-1970s. Mao Zedong dies in 1976. Zhou Enlai, the other formidable you know, leader of China and Chinese foreign policy, died the year earlier. And there's a power struggle in China. The so-called Gang of Four, the Maoists, including Mao's wife, are imprisoned. They're put on trial. 
and China resumes an effort to explore better relations with the United States. Now, China is an ally of Cambodia, or what was at that time called Kampuchea, led by the government, led by Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Vietnam, which is the most powerful part of the Laotian, Cambodian, Vietnamese, that Southeast Asian or Indo-Chinese communist movement, they are aligned with the Soviet Union. And there's also a struggle between Pol Pot and the Cambodians or the Kampuchean government and Vietnam, border clashes, shooting starts, and this conflict, which in some ways becomes a proxy for the Soviet-Chinese conflict, erupts into military clashes. And then Vietnam makes this decisive move in December 1978 and invades Cambodia. And being more powerful than the Cambodians or the Kampucheans is able to oust the Pol Pot government and create a new Vietnamese-friendly government. And again, that was a big shock to people who had supported Vietnam and, of course, Cambodia. But it showed that the struggle between the socialist countries had degenerated even further. And of course, it makes a big, big impact on Chinese foreign policy. In many ways, China considers the invasion of Cambodia by Vietnam to be a direct confrontation with China itself. Anyway, let's pick up from there. Do you agree, first of all, with my framing of this question? Oh, I think so. Just to start from the point where you were getting to, you know, the United States had been defeated by the Vietnamese and had to withdraw from Southeast Asia, or not all of Southeast Asia, but certainly from the theater of war. And Vietnam was, you know, pursuing its course of reunification after 1975. But just across the border in Cambodia, and of course, Cambodia had also been devastated by American imperialism, not just since the invasion in 1970, but even before that. But the alignments of Vietnam and Cambodia, as you say, had taken on a place within this larger division within the socialist world that Vietnam had certainly during the war had tried to maintain good relations with both Soviet Union and China, but clearly was more closely affiliated with the Soviets. Cambodia, well before the Pol Pot regime under King Sihanouk and under the earlier governments before Pol Pot, before the Khmer Rouge, had long had a close affiliation with China. So the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia on one level certainly was an expression of these divisions that had emerged within the socialist camp. It was also, of course, it reminds us that there continue to be what I suppose we might think of as nationalist or even ethnic divisions that inflect the politics of the socialist world as well. One of the reasons that Vietnam gave for its invasion of Cambodia was the moves that the Khmer Rouge government had been taking against ethnic Vietnamese living in Cambodia. So Vietnam sort of made this a protective gesture. They intervened in order to protect their own people, even though they were Cambodian citizens, but they were ethnically Vietnamese. So it's a complex mix of motivations. But all of that reflects, as you say, the sort of deterioration or erosion of solidarity, which had been characteristic of the socialist bloc prior to this. And I think that in some ways, that's an outgrowth of what proved to be a somewhat transient perception of you know, the decline of American imperialism. The American defeat in Vietnam certainly made it appear that American imperialism was a kind of a spent force, was no longer going to be quite so much of a challenge. And perhaps that took some of the pressure off the socialist camp and allowed some of these internal divisions to intensify and become certainly more visible, but also more active. I mean, for Vietnam to invade Cambodia, and then in 1979, China invades Vietnam, all of these confrontations are emerging at a point point where, at least for a while, there was this sense of the fading away of the American threat. Now, that proves to be illusory. That proves to be a misreading of that immediate situation. American imperialism certainly had been defeated, but it regroups and certainly does not abandon its efforts to maintain its position as a global hegemon. 
But I think that we can see some of these divisions, this intensification of these divisions in the socialist camp within that context of a temporary sort of dip in the menace of American imperialism. But I also think that what you said early on is really critical, which is that China by this time was looking at the actualities of American conduct through the 70s. And at the beginning in 71, 72, when those negotiations took place that culminated in Nixon's visit, China, I think uh, the Chinese leadership really thought that the United States would become more closely affiliated with China and take a more a more stringently hostile attitude towards the Soviet Union. But that's not at all what happened. The U.S. continued to negotiate with the Soviets and really tried to, in a sense, increase the alienation between the Chinese and the Soviets in their own interest, in the interest of American imperialism. And the Chinese were able to read that and perceive that. But of course, as the whole strategic environment shifted and the Soviet Union faced its own challenges, that it all became much more complicated and much more disrupted as we get down to the end of the 70s. And this entire decade is filled with so many ironies, and I would say bitter ironies for people on the left as well. One of them is that under Nixon's leadership, and to some extent, Gerald Ford, who took his place after he resigned rather than be impeached, part of the policy as the United States was playing the Soviet Union against China and China against the Soviet Union, in other words, classic divide and conquer, The U.S. had relaxed its relationship with the Soviet Union. There was what was called at that time the era of detente. So Nixon has like an accommodation with China, but at the same time pursuing detente, meaning a relaxation of tensions. Seems to the Soviet leadership, the Cold War was ending. As a matter of fact, at that time, or not a little bit afterwards, I was in a discussion with the Soviet, I believe it was the Soviet ambassador to the United Nations. And I said, what was the best period? This was in 1976 or 77. I said, what was the best period for U.S.-Soviet relations? And he said, oh, that would be 1972. And I'm thinking to myself as a young radical person, how could that be a period of normalization and peace when the U.S. is bombing the hell out of Vietnam? How could that be the best period? But for the Soviets who were pursuing a policy of peaceful coexistence. Yes, they supported Vietnam. Yes, they supported the ANC in South Africa. Yes, they supported Cuba against the blockade. They did these things to challenge imperialism, but they were really, really looking for better relations or a relaxation of tensions with the U.S. And so that's the policy that Nixon and Kissinger were playing. That was their orientation. The Soviets needed wheat. The American farmers were allowed to sell wheat. But then in 1974, after Nixon is gone, there's a big right-wing backlash in America to any relations with the Soviet Union. That's when the Jackson-Varnick Amendment is passed. Let's just talk about how this the irony of ironies, the bitter ironies, is that because Nixon, as an imperialist tactic to divide the two socialist countries, relaxes tensions with both, and that stirs this right-wing anti-Soviet wave that actually overcame the period of detente. And by the time Jimmy Carter becomes president in 1977, the period of detente is largely over, although not fully over. Right. The end of the 70s, of course, sees a re-engagement of the Americans with China. The final recognition of China in January of 1979 under President Carter launches a new phase. And of course, by that time, there have been significant changes in the Chinese leadership itself. You know, it's never been clear to me to what extent American policymakers really appreciated what was happening in Beijing between 1976 and 1978 while those final negotiations were going on. But in retrospect, you know, we certainly see that China was poised on the verge of a major reorientation or reconfiguration of its developmental policies. And of course, that will lead in the 80s 
to a new phase of relations between China and the United States. But in the late 70s, yeah, as American attitudes towards the Soviet Union once again begin to shift, not as dramatically as they will under Reagan after the 1980 election, but that's the threshold, I suppose, of entering into yet another phase of these long and kind of triangular relationships. I want to spend one more moment on the bitter ironies of that period. As Mao dies, or shortly thereafter, or really even before Mao's death, as the Chinese now view what they call Soviet social imperialism as the main danger, before they said the Soviet Union was capitulating to imperialism, it was soft on imperialism, now the position is the Soviet Union itself is an imperialist country, and all all the Maoists are trying to write these ridiculous books about why capitalism had actually been restored in the Soviet unions, why it was scientifically correct to describe the Soviet Union as an imperialist and thus a capitalist country. All of these extended and I'd say fairly ridiculous polemics. When I say Maoists, I don't mean people in China. I'm talking about you know all the Maoist parties, including those in the United States. They wrote books and said, ah, yes, the Soviet Union is imperialist and it's imperialist because Capitalism has been restored in the Soviet Union, even though that was complete and utter nonsense. (laughs) But when you look at that period, the U.S., and this goes back also partly to what you were saying about the perception that American imperialism is a spent force. The U.S. loses in Vietnam. It's lost in Cambodia. It loses in Laos. In 1974, there's an uprising of the workers in Portugal and the pro well, not pro, the fascist government in Portugal is toppled and the weakness in Portugal is largely stimulated by the national liberation movements in Portuguese colonies in Africa, that meaning Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. So there's a revolution in Portugal and then the national liberation movements actually, now that there's been a revolution, an anti-fascist revolution in Portugal, they go for it. They're going to reclaim their countries to be independent. And many of them are led by Marxists like the MPLA in Angola or Samora Michel in Mozambique. And in the other Portuguese colony, Amalcar Cabral is leading the struggle in Guinea-Bissau. So there are Marxist movements in Africa struggling to take power. Now, there are other really important developments that happened in 1977, communists take power in Ethiopia. In 1978, the Afghan government is transformed by a socialist takeover of power, and it aligns with the Soviet Union. In February 1978, the American dictator puppet Shah of Iran is toppled by a people's revolution. In July 1979, the Sandinistas overthrow a U.S. puppet dictator Somoza, and take power. When you look at that period, 73 to 79, it looks like American imperialism is really in decline, that it really might be a spent force. But the irony, the bitter irony, is that as the Chinese adopt this position that the Soviet Union is an imperialist country and the main enemy, Chinese foreign policy starts to take the side of U.S. imperialism and its allies in the struggle against the MPLA in Angola, in Mozambique, a dramatic reorientation. And for those of us who had always supported China and Vietnam and the socialist bloc, and of course, the national liberation movements in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere, it was a shock to see China basically on the other side. Well, and I think, you know, that goes all the way back, I recall, all the way back to the 1973 coup in Chile, when China gave diplomatic recognition to the military regime. You know, I remember being very upset by that, very shocked by that. But certainly those late 70s decisions that the Chinese made, the situation in Angola, and of course, the Cubans had sent tremendous assistance to the liberation struggle in Angola. And to have China kind of come down on what very much felt like the wrong side. It was pretty disheartening, to say the least. And just as the Chinese had said wrongly that the Soviet Union was an imperialist capitalist power because it became an overdrawn ideological struggle, the people who were aligned with the Soviet Union or with these national liberation movements who were 
basically shocked and certainly very, very upset by China's change in foreign policy. They then extended their characterization of China as being also a capitalist country, also a country that was working with imperialism, meaning part of the enemy. So the sociological estimate of what the People's Republic of China was basically altered because people were upset with the political turn of China. But in fact, the Chinese social system was the same social system. It's just that the policy, not the system, but the policy had changed. And as we go through the different stages and phases of China's foreign policy, I think this is extremely important to remember because if you conflate your sociological estimate, that is the political and class character of a government because you don't like a particular policy, you end up by mischaracterizing a bad policy from a socialist government with the social system itself, you end up becoming one, an enemy of the social system, and two, that allows those who take that position to end up in the wrong side when imperialism turns, you know, as we can see later, when imperialism turns decisively against China, a great number of people in the U.S. left said, oh, China, there's nothing left to support. These are two enemy countries, two equally oppressive countries. Again, it's a reminder of how important it is to have an independent class analysis of a country that allows you to support the social system even while you retain an independent and perhaps at times critical attitude towards its policies, not the system itself. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important perspective to keep in mind because, you know, the late 70s, of course, is a period in China when there's a transformation in leadership because of the death of Zhou Enlai and Chairman Mao, and then the arrest of the Gang of Four. And then after a couple of years of internal maneuvering, the reemergence of Deng Xiaoping, and then the enunciation of what become the policies of reform and opening to the outside. You know, that is also bound up with this same period where we see these foreign policy decisions being made by the Chinese leadership. And I think, yes, that many people, many comrades, you know, who had long been supporters of China and advocates of China sort of throw up their hands and say, oh, well, China has capitulated to capitalism and now we're going to have to condemn them in the same way that we would condemn the Soviet Union. And so, you know, it goes from a situation where there had been all of this solidarity between the Chinese and the Soviets back in the 50s. Now, by the time you get down to the end of the 70s, and especially in the 1980s, for many on the Western left, there comes to be kind of a new conflation of China and the Soviet Union as both having taken the capitalist road. And I think that, as you say, it very much affects the posture that people take towards China. And again, as you say, it's a reading down from the policy level to the level of what's the actual organization of the society and the state and the economy, that it's an idealist, it's almost a Hegelian inversion of what the realities of the Chinese system were and remain. So before we leave the 70s, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier and what I had alluded to. In January 1979, Deng Xiaoping comes to the United States. He lands in Atlanta. Of course, Jimmy Carter's from Georgia. He meets with Jimmy Carter in the White House and a few weeks later invades Vietnam. Now, I can't, again, for our audience that is from the left, that who are socialists, I can't overstate how depressing this was, that Deng Xiaoping is being embraced by Jimmy Carter. And at the same time, he undoubtedly consulted or informed, I think there's clear historical evidence of this, conferred with Carter, letting him know that the Chinese were about to invade Vietnam. The purpose of the invasion of Vietnam was to force Vietnam to leave Cambodia or to make some new arrangements so that China's allies in Cambodia would return to power. It was payback for the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia in 1978, the removal of the Pol Pot government. It was a short war. If China, which is such a larger country than Vietnam, thought they would succeed quickly, they didn't. The Vietnamese, who had been fighting for 40 years, fought very tenaciously and 
It was a short-lived war. But it was, I felt, Ken, at the time, I have to say, saying this in the context of being supporters of the socialist project in China, as well as the Soviet Union, as well as Cambodia, as well as Vietnam, this was a dark moment. This was a gloomy outcome that after American imperialism appeared to be defeated in Southeast Asia and revolutions were taking place all over the world to have the great People's Republic of China send its military into Vietnam just after Vietnam had reunited as an independent socialist country, it seemed like, well, it seemed like such a betrayal, no other way to put it. Anyway, you were politically active at that time. You were involved in politics as well as education. What was your reaction? Well, as you say, I mean, after 1975, we were jubilant that those of us who had, you know, fought in the anti-war movement and supported the liberation struggle of the Vietnamese people for years, to have that struggle come to victory, have the country be reunified, this was a glorious sort of outcome. And we were feeling very positive about that. And then just a few years later, of course, the death of Chairman Mao had been a blow in some ways. And just a few years later, to have China, which we had also supported and been very engaged with and seen as a beacon of hope, you know, to have China and Vietnam be at war with one another, it was really kind of incomprehensible. It was disoriented. It was disheartening. It was the sort of thing that, you know, you just you just didn't want to try to have a conversation with people about because, you know, one was at a loss as to how you could explain something like this. How did you make sense of something like this? It was indeed, as you say, it was a very dark moment. In fact, in New York City, there were very large demonstrations by progressive leftists who supported Vietnam and who had previously been supporting China. There were big demonstrations at the Chinese embassy at the United Nations in support of Vietnam and to condemn this invasion by China into Vietnam. The war ends after about 18 days. Many thousands of people had died nonetheless, though. It ends in a stalemate. China clearly wasn't intending to invade and overturn Vietnam. It was, again, trying to use military power as leverage against the Vietnamese. That didn't really work. But I want to also mention that, you know, as China's foreign policy is going through these very dynamic shifts and changes, so too is a struggle inside the American imperialist establishment to try to overcome what appears to be the real decline of the standing and status of American imperialism. And we've talked about that. So in 1979, the right wing, the military industrial complex, big oil, they started mounting a massive campaign to stop the communist winning streak, as General Al Haig put it, and to overcome through the remilitarization of America and taking a very hard line against the Soviet Union to reverse what seemed to be the devolving status of American imperialism and the dynamically developing prospects for the Soviet Union and world socialism. And so in 1979, this lobby in Washington and around the country demanded that the Carter administration stop any new arms agreements with the Soviet Union and instead remilitarize and plan for war. Right before Deng Xiaoping comes to Washington and meets with Jimmy Carter, a full-page ad appeared in the New York Times by something called the Committee on the Present Danger. And this is really the military and the military-industrial complex. It was a letter signed by 170 retired generals and admirals. Again, it appeared as a full-page ad on January 21st, 1979, and it basically is demanding that Carter change course. It's a hostile letter to Carter, even though it's addressed to dear Mr. President. But in the letter, which demands that the U.S. take a hard line against the Soviet Union, against socialism, and to remilitarize, rearm America, and of course, Reagan comes in the next year and does just that with the support of this military. He doubles the U.S. military budget, becomes highly aggressive towards the Soviet Union, places tactical nuclear weapons all over Europe with a flight time of six minutes to their target in the Soviet Union. And that is what in turn created the anti-nuclear movement, a global anti-nuclear movement, but one that was very, very strong in the 80s in Europe because it looked like the U.S. 
was getting ready for nuclear war. Detente was giving way to the next Cold War. Well, in this letter, the 170 admirals and generals say, I want to read one sentence from the letter to Carter. Quote, Soviet imperial objectives appear to include the neutralization of Western Europe in part by denying it access to critical raw materials, the encirclement of China, and the isolation of the United States. So here's the right wing, the military-industrial complex, clearly signaling the Chinese government, we consider you to be right at the center of the new constellation of forces. It's Western Europe, meaning NATO. It's the United States, meaning, of course, the United States as the anchor of world imperialism. And you, China, we are all the victims of Soviet expansionism and Soviet imperialism. And you, Jimmy Carter, have to stop being so soft and weak and get to it and start the process of remilitarization. From the point of view of the Chinese leadership, when they read all this, and they're obviously paying close attention to every detail in American policy change, they might be thinking, well, this is good. This means that we're going to be really integrated into the world economy. The West is going to really open up to us. The West considers us a real ally. The defense of China is even identified by these 170 right-wing you know, militarists, generals and admirals that they want to defend us against the Soviet Union. This means that our path to development is opening up because under these circumstances, we might be able to, instead of being sanctioned and boycotted and excluded from the world economy, integrated into the world economy. And it's precisely at that time and under these political circumstances that the Chinese government starts the process of what becomes the opening up of China. Let's just talk again about the intersection here of what appears to be a changed global political environment and also how it sort of dovetails with or intersects with China's real goal in all of this, which is to overcome economic underdevelopment. Well, I think, you know, that letter and this initiative by these right-wing militarists, as you say, it's a perfect sort of threshold moment positioning things right before the election of 1980, which brings in Ronald Reagan as the new president and launches this era of the rise of neoliberalism as the new dominant sort of political culture in the Western imperialist world. And of course, you know, the Thatcher administration was a sort of mini rehearsal for this across the Atlantic, but it's the rise of the Reaganistas and their neoliberal ideology that transforms what's going on within the United States. It transforms American political culture in ways that have stayed with us ever since. It moves the entire political conversation in the United States to the right. And it's at that point that this idea of seeing China as a sort of outlying component of America's new position, really, this is what animates a lot of what happens in the 1980s. And it dovetails perfectly with what's going on in China with their desire to open up to the global system a bit in order to draw in investment, in order to draw in new productive technologies, in order to, as the Chinese say, in order to use the mechanisms of the market to develop their productive economy as a way of building the foundation, of further building the foundation for entry into you know, the transition to socialism. It's a moment of convenience. It's very ironic because it's a moment of convenience when emergent right-wing neoliberal forces in the West, especially in America, find a community of interest with the changing strategies of socialist development on the part of the Chinese leadership. As I say, the 80s is this weird sort of honeymoon period. You have visits by Chinese leaders to America and by American politicians to China. You have a whole sort of cultural wave of China-friendly gestures. I remember department stores in New York, you know, running big ad campaigns about products coming from China and using sort of oriental imagery as part of their consumer promotions. It was a very strange period. 
And, you know, the neoliberals set out to reconfigure the American economy to claw back the gains that had been made by the working class going all the way back to the 1930s, you know, to move against unions, to move against government regulation, all this stuff to reconfigure the American domestic economy and America's role within the capitalist world. But they also saw China as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. And this is the period where what I sometimes think of as the great self-deception by Western bourgeois politicians really kicks in, which was that their faith was because they had this neoliberal passion for you know supposed free trade, open market economics, they thought, and I think many of them sincerely believed, that by engaging with China, that by investing in China, that by supporting this marketization in China, that that would lead China down the capitalist road, that that would make China convert from a socialist country with a communist party in the leading role and trying to build a modern, you know, prosperous economy that could be the foundation for socialist transformation. They thought that they were going to play China, they were going to play these neoliberal policies as a way of transforming China and making that connection between the United States and China into a substantive reality. Now, and that was a fundamental misreading on the part of the American elites of what was actually happening in China. But it did launch this basically 10-year period all through the 1980s when it's not like the United States and China were the best buddies in the world, but it was a period where there was a belief in American political elites that some process of convergence was taking place that was going to draw China into the capitalist world. And that dictated a lot of the foreign policy moves and activities that went on through that decade. Of course, that runs into a brick wall in 1989. But for a while, that was certainly the dream that animated American policymakers towards China. It seems to me, Ken, that what was happening, and I'm agreeing with you, but I want to just sort of spin it out a little bit more, is that there are two elements. American capitalist corporations who were allowed to now come into China and set up shop and build factories and who could pay Chinese workers and millions, maybe hundreds of millions of poor people from Chinese villages in the countryside, peasants, came in to the cities and as they came into the cities, they were employed by Western capitalist corporations, and those corporations were making super profits. American workers were being you know, just devastated as the process of offshoring, not just in China, but also in Mexico and many, many other countries, developing countries, when the nature of modern technology made it possible for an American manufacturer to make shirts for instance, in China or in Bangladesh or someplace 7,000 miles away, it was still cheaper to make them there and bring them back or electronic products that were designed in the West but assembled in China and then bring them back. In other words, export them from China. These corporations could make super profits. So on one element, there's just greed. There's just the normal capitalist greed and American workers are devastated by this neoliberal offshoring of production to China and elsewhere, but especially China. And then on the same time, there's the political calculations, which is what you're also talking about, where American policymakers who actually know so little about the world, but think because they have so much power that they know everything about the world, they just assumed, look, if China's integrated into the world economy, if China essentially becomes sort of a place of assembly, if it in fact looks like a neo-colony, like the way other neo-colonies look, it will be a neo-colony and the rule of the Communist Party will be so corrupted by its integration into the world economy at this low level of the food chain of production as an assembler of products, we can bribe them, we can you know, pay them off, we can you know, do what you do with elites and neo-colonies, which is to basically make them be comprador extensions of the imperialist system. So they were sure that this would happen. And that's why if we speed ahead, and I don't want to speed ahead too much because I want to stay in this era, but when you hear Pompeo, for instance, or Anthony Blinken, his successor, 
or Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, they said the biggest mistake America ever made was to integrate China into the world economy because we believe that this would make China, quote, liberal, which actually translated means make China a neo-colonial servant of American imperialism. That's what that actually means. And we were wrong because the Chinese had no intention of becoming a neo-colonial servant of American imperialism. They used us instead of us using them. Well, in fact, both sides were using each other, but the desired outcome 40 years later isn't to have China in the clutches of American imperialism. But on the contrary, China was able to take advantage of the technology that was brought to China from Western corporations. It learned the technology. It made agreements with the Western corporations, the quid pro quo being, look, you can invest, you can pay low wages, you can make super profits, but one will be getting more income than we would if our people were stuck in remote villages. Secondly, we're also going to make you partner with Chinese companies so that the licensing of technologies was such that at some point they would be accessible for China's indigenous industry. And China basically was able to use the size of its market, the great wealth that would come from this huge, vast market, both a market to sell, but also a labor market, to leverage in the negotiations with Western corporations so that China benefited by acquiring technology. Now, the American politicians like Pompeo or Blinken say, this was kind of hostage taking where China somehow forced American companies to come and do business and share technology, or as they put it, steal American technology. But that was the deal. But again, American elites had both a political and an economic calculation here. The economic calculation was correct. The American companies did make super profits. The political calculation went off the cliff. Exactly. Exactly. Again, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but I think that that's what feeds a lot of the super hostile antagonism towards China today, is that the American capitalist elites believed that China would be seduced and transformed into, as they call it, liberalization, both economically and politically, that it would become a sort of open market capitalist system and a new bourgeoisie would take power and there would be some sort of political transformation. And then that would be vulnerable to the same kinds of manipulations that American imperialism exercises everywhere else. And that, of course, hasn't happened. And I think that the realization of that, which really you can see very clearly all the way back in the Obama administration and, and even before, the realization that China wasn't going to become as you say, a subordinate component of a new era global division of labor, but was actually going to develop its own economy, raise the standards of its own people, and take a place on its own two feet rather than being, you know, on its knees to American imperialism. That kind of drives them crazy. You know, that's not what they wanted. That's not what they thought they were going to do. And that's not what they thought was happening. So to be confronted by that alternative reality now, it drives them kind of crazy. Ken, I want to, I think, finish this segment by talking about the last irony of ironies. And again, the entire decade is marked by such remarkable ironies. And you might call it an irony. You might just call it the dialectic, but certainly a period of contradictions. And the contradictions are within the existing phenomena themselves, but they lead to outcomes that were not completely foreseeable. And I'm thinking about what the impact was on the Soviet leadership of China's integration into the world economy in the early 1980s. Now, just for everyone to kind of get this, the Soviet economy also, like the Chinese economy recently, had grown exponentially starting in 1930 with the beginning of the five-year plans. So even during the Great Depression of the 1930s, the Soviet Union was going way forward. It didn't have any depression at all. It seemed to prove the rightness and correctness of Soviet socialism, public ownership, a planned economy, the monopoly on foreign trade, because the Soviets had these exponential increases in growth and didn't experience any recession. The only time there was a real economic contraction was during the Nazi invasion. But unlike the Western capitalist countries that go through a boom-bust cycle, the Soviets had just gone straight up. 
And the living standard of the Soviet peoples, both in Russia and the other republics, was going up steadily. But in the 1980s, coinciding with the integration of China into the world market and where the Soviets perceived China now as an ally of American imperialism, there was economic stagnation in the Soviet Union. Things started to slow down. America would not sell the Soviets even at one computer. The Jackson Varnick Amendment, which I mentioned earlier, which sort of ended detente in 1974-75, it precluded any economic interaction with the Soviets. At the same time, the remilitarization of America, the placement of tactical nuclear weapons all over Europe and circling the Soviet Union, again, with flight times of six minutes to their Soviet targets. And at the same time, coinciding with all this, the Soviet leadership was very old. And so Leonid Brezhnev, who had been the leader since the mid-60s, he was very sick. He died. He was replaced by Yuri Andropov, also very old. Within about a year, he died. Then he was replaced by another old member of the Politburo, Chernyenko. He died right away. So the Soviet leadership looked senile. It looked old. It looked decrepit. I'm talking about up till 1984. And the Soviets were being threatened by U.S. imperialism, the rearmed imperialism. And at the same time, they looked enviously at China's integration into the world economy and arriving on the scene in the Soviet Union was a new leadership who was not old. He was young. That was Mikhail Gorbachev. And he immediately announces, look, we have to overcome stagnation. We have to find a way to make peace with the United States. He says, let's have, instead of class struggle, a policy announcing that there are universal human values, universal human rights. And suddenly, Ronald Reagan, the anti-communist, and Margaret Thatcher think, oh, here's a guy we can work with. As a matter of fact, those were Margaret Thatcher's exact words. And Gorbachev became flattered. I mean, when he came to Washington or New York, big crowds came out to greet him. There was a Mikhail Gorbachev fad. And the Soviets were sort of embraced by the United States in the mid-80s. And Gorbachev started a process called perestroika and glasnost, meaning opening up politically and decentralizing and in part privatizing the Soviet economy. I think trying in some ways to do what China did and to win the favor of the United States. But instead, what happened is that the sort of diminution of a Soviet position against imperialism, opening up the decentralization led to the movements of counter-revolutionary anti-communists in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe had always been a vulnerable place because there was never, except in Yugoslavia, a genuine revolution from the ground up. Those socialist governments were created by the victory of the Red Army over the Nazis and the liberation of those countries by the Soviet Red Army. During the early years of the Cold War, Stalin hoped they would be neutral countries. But when American imperialism intensified its aggression in 1947-48, the CP and the government in the Soviet Union facilitated the takeover of those governments in Eastern Europe by communists. So they had communist governments, communist party governments, but their origin was not in a people's revolution. It wasn't like China or the Soviet Union or Vietnam or Korea or Cuba. It was kind of revolution from above. And under the conditions of Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost and the stagnation economically in the socialist camp, there was a counter-revolutionary uprising and instead of fighting it, Gorbachev said, let it go. Let's give Eastern Europe back to imperialism, to Western imperialism, and then we, like China, will be integrated into the world economy. But what that did was stimulate anti-communist uprisings, not just in Eastern and Central Europe, but also in the Soviet Union and inside the Soviet Communist Party. And Gorbachev, who was in one way trying to make friends again with China after that long dispute. He visits China, but it's in May 1989, and the same circumstance of what's happening in Eastern Europe is happening in the People's Republic of China, and we know it in the West as the Tiananmen student protest that lasted seven weeks that ended not with the victory of the anti-government forces, but their suppression. Again, the irony or the contradictoriness or the dialectic of all of these events, even though China had become hostile 
to the socialist bloc or to the Soviet Union, what happened inside the Soviet Union or what happened inside the socialist bloc, like the Eastern and Central European governments, had a very, very significant political impact still on what was going on inside China. Let's talk about that. Well, there's a lot there. You've touched on some really, really critical developments. And one thing, of course, that goes on through the 80s, and you know, so much of this involves American imperialism saying one thing and doing another, which is certainly not an unfamiliar phenomenon. When Reagan comes in and launches his neoliberal offensive against the American working class and his efforts to rebuild the position of American imperialism within the global arena, it's actually a point where he refocuses American foreign policy in an increasingly anti-Soviet way. But at the same time, it you know assumes a public posture which appears to be sort of reconciliationist and you know let's find a way forward and of course when gorbachev comes along he's kind of the perfect foil for reagan because he's presented as you say as this youngster he's a reformer he wants to find you know common ground and all this and reagan you know publicly certainly appears to embrace that he meets with gorbachev a number of times there's lots of lovely photo ops but at the same time as you mentioned you know the united states is ramping up its military spending it's ramping up its positioning of aggressive weapon systems and troop concentrations in different parts of the world and reagan basically embarks on kind of a great gamble which is to challenge the Soviets to a kind of new arms race, a high-tech, intense reconfiguration, the whole Star Wars undertaking, this idea that missile defenses were going to be reconfigured in different ways. And his bet, Reagan's bet, was that although this was going to cost the United States a lot of money, and indeed in the Reagan years, the U.S. goes from being the largest creditor country in the world to being the biggest debtor country in the world. We went from having more people owe us money than anybody else to owing more people money than anybody else. His bet was, though, that we could outlast the Soviets. We could go deep and deep and deep into debt but we would force them to do the same thing. We would force them to divert resources from their domestic economy, from their civilian economy into these unproductive expenditures on military systems. The Soviets, of course, had gone into Afghanistan to try to support the progressive socialist government there. And the U.S. throughout the 80s fueled anti-government insurrections there. Of course, that was going to come back as a problematic development in later times for the United States itself. But, you know, we forced them to waste more resources there. And Reagan's calculation in the end proved to be significantly correct, a significant component of the stagnation of the Soviet economy, the frustration of Soviet people, which made them vulnerable to the manipulations of these anti-communist forces, which, of course, we also clandestinely aided in Eastern Europe and even within the Soviet Union. So that whole dynamic between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 80s was kind of a smile on the face, but also slipping the dagger in between the ribs. And that contributed, that was one of the main factors driving the ultimate breakup of the socialist governments in Eastern Europe and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But at the same time, as you say, you know, Gorbachev's visit to China in May of 1989 came in the midst of demonstrations which had gotten underway after the death of Hu Yaobang, who was a sort of very reformist political leader. He had been one of the two top leaders in the party, and he had been removed from his leadership position. He was still on the political bureau, but he, along with Zhao Ziyang, had been the biggest advocates of really a fairly radical free market sort of orientation in the reform program. And he had died of a heart attack at a political bureau meeting on April 15th of 1989. 
demonstrations had begun by young people, college students, young professionals. It's a very complex political landscape that these emerge from. A lot of frustrations with the effects of the reform policies, concerns about corruption in government and the party and things like that. There were certainly some legitimate grounds for people to express their opinions, but it becomes transformed over the weeks of late April and May into a direct and very, very clear challenge to the legitimacy of the People's Republic and to the leadership of the Communist Party. And it's, you know, manipulated and not very subtly by American imperialism and outside forces. You know, Western journalists show up in Beijing in huge numbers to cover Gorbachev's visit which turns into kind of a sideshow as these Western journalists ramp up a cheerleader squad calling for the overthrow of the Chinese government, calling for, you know, portraying these students, portraying these demonstrators, which was true for some of them, as dedicated to, you know, converting China into a Western style bourgeois democracy. And of course, that leads to the final confrontation after Gorbachev's visit comes and goes. That leads to a final decision by the leadership of the government and the party to try to restore order, to try to reclaim the center of the city, the center of the capital of the People's Republic that brings in the People's Liberation Army. And of course, nobody thinks that it was a great event to have fighting in the streets of China's capital, to have the People's Liberation Army have to be engaged in armed conflict with violent insurrectionists in the street. But that was what happened. That was what was necessary to restore order and bring this movement that had parallel the city for weeks to an end. That, of course, was a tremendous frustration and disappointment to the forces in the West, to the American bourgeois elite and Western imperialism in general, who really had their hopes up, who really thought this was going to be the kind of color revolution, as they came to be called, that was going to lead to regime change and the end of the Communist Party and the real throwing open of China to the unrestricted penetration and domination of Western capital. Obviously, that wasn't what was going to happen. The Chinese never had any intention of allowing that to happen. And I think that the years since then have certainly demonstrated the ultimate correctness of the choices that were made at that time. Yeah, these are important events. And it's hard to overstate the level of hysteria that was generated in the Western media against the Chinese government when it finally, after seven weeks cleared the, as you said, Tiananmen Square is the center of the Chinese government. It had been occupied for seven weeks. The Chinese leadership had met with the leaders of the protests on national public television. They were just treated with absolute disrespect on national television. And then the way it was portrayed in the United States and other places is that People's Liberation Army came in and massacred these peaceful protesters who had erected a statue that looked just like the Statue of Liberty in the middle of Tiananmen Square. And Ken, we're going to end on this part, but again, it's hard to overstate. I went around the country at that time debating people who were condemning China, including people who were well-known authors and supporters of China earlier and had been supporting the Cultural Revolution and supporting Chairman Mao. And they were all like, no, this is a kind of fascism. And these peaceful, wonderful demonstrators were you know, gunned down. Well, None of the people who were killed were actually killed in the square. The military moved into the square finally on June 4th, and the students were actually allowed to leave. There was street fighting in the areas around the square. But I want to read, too, as we finish out, a little bit of press reporting at the time that got almost no coverage, almost no coverage, but it shows a little bit of a different picture than the accepted narrative by Western media that... These wonderful, idealist, peaceful student protesters were gunned down. Here's the Washington Post, June 12th, 1989, an article that didn't get much attention. On one avenue in western Beijing, demonstrators torched an entire military convoy of more than 100 trucks and armored vehicles. Aerial pictures of conflagration and columns of smoke have powerfully bolstered the Chinese government's arguments that the troops were victims, not executioners. Other scenes showed soldiers' corpses and demonstrators stripping automatic rifles off unresisting soldiers. 
Again, everybody, that's the Washington Post, June 12th, 1989, eight days later, an account that was more or less buried. Here's what the Wall Street Journal said. And of course, the Wall Street Journal is you know a leading voice of anti-communism. It says, right after June 4th, one of the stories acknowledged that, quote, radicalized protesters, some now armed with guns and vehicles, commandeered in clashes with the military, were preparing for larger armed struggles. Quote, this is the Wall Street Journal. As columns of tanks and tens of thousands of soldiers approached Tiananmen, many troops were set on fire by angry mobs. Dozens of soldiers were pulled from trucks, severely beaten, and left for dead. At an intersection west of the square, the body of a young soldier who had been beaten to death was stripped naked and hung from the side of a bus. Another soldier's corpse was strung at the intersection east of the square. Now, that's, I mean, can you imagine, dear audience, if there were massive protests in Washington, D.C. that had occupied and stopped the government from functioning for seven weeks, and then the protesters emptied arsenals from police stations and took up guns and started beating or lynching police officers or National Guardsmen, how those demonstrators might be presented. And yet this is actually what happened. Ken, we're going to come back and use the post-Tiananmen Square as the starting point for our next look at Chinese foreign policy. This will be the look at the 1990s and the entrance of China into the World Trade Organization. And again, also a little bit about China in the war that NATO waged against Yugoslavia in 1999. I'll give you the last word on Tiananmen Square. Well, you know, at the time, I was actually working with an American study abroad program in Beijing. And we had evacuated our students towards the end of May because it was clear that the situation was, you know, very dangerous and likely to get out of control. So I was not in Beijing at the time of June 4th, but I went back in. I was recalled into Beijing a little bit later in June. When I got there, the central city was still under martial law. You could still hear gunshots at night. There were roadblocks in different parts of the city because there were still people who were trying to carry on a kind of almost a guerrilla campaign fighting against the police and the units of the PLA that had been brought in to restore order. And I talked to a lot of people. I knew a lot of young people. I knew other people from my generation who were teachers or professors at educational institutions. And even their accounts were pretty much as the ones that you read from the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. The neighborhood I lived in happened to be near the Naval Hospital, which was the biggest hospital that took casualties from that night. It's over on the west side. It's just north of an intersection called Mushidi, which is the one that you were referring to where some of the heaviest fighting took place. And their count, what they told me by the end of June was that the best figures that they had from that night was that between six and 800 people had been killed. And about a third of those were military personnel. So the idea that, as you say, that this was a sort of unprovoked massacre of innocent bystanders is not a correct, not an accurate historical perspective. You're also quite right that nobody was killed in the square. The soldiers got down there about 2.30 in the morning, and they gave the few people who were still there the option of leaving, which most of them did. A handful of people stayed to be arrested, and they were arrested. They weren't harmed in any way. But this mythology about Tiananmen, of course, has become everybody knows that picture of the fellow with the shopping bag standing in front of a tank, which is actually several days after the events of June 4th. And that fellow himself was not harmed. He wasn't arrested. He stood there for a while and went about his business. But that mythology, that sort of imagery of a sort of brutal crackdown on helpless bystanders, it's just not historically correct. And the political nature of what happened in May and June of 1989 and the lessons to be learned from that perhaps are things that we should start with next time around. Yes, indeed. And as we start the 1990s, the big event is the collapse, the end of the Soviet Union, the dismemberment of the multinational 15 Republic Soviet Union. And of course, even though the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China had 
a hostile attitude in the 1960s and 1970s towards the Soviet Union. Certainly the impact on the political thinking and the political calculations, including the foreign policy calculations of the People's Republic of China, I mean, it would be hard to, again, overstate what those must have been. And we'll talk about that, too. Anyway, we'll leave it right there. When we come back, we're going to talk about the 1990s all the way up until the joining of China in the World Trade Organization and the official integration of China into the world economy when the United States policymakers still thought that was a good idea. We've been joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. He's the professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. He's an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>